On April 30, 2015, John M. Carey, John Wentworth Professor in the Social Sciences and the Chair of the Government Department at Dartmouth College, presented a seminar at the Ash Center entitled Compulsory Voting and Income Inequality. The seminar was moderated by Tarek Massoud, Associate Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was part of the Comparative Democracy Seminar Series at the Ash Center. For more information, visit ash.harvard.edu. Okay, um, everybody, uh, welcome uh, to uh, the penultimate meeting of this year's uh, Comparative Democracy Seminar. Um, we are uh, really lucky to have with us today uh, Professor John Carey. I, every time I talk about John, I always say C-A-R-E-Y, because people think I'm talking. Um, who's the John Wentworth Professor in the Social Sciences and Chair of the Government Department at uh, Dartmouth College. Um, uh, John is a very distinguished political scientist. He's written many seminal works. Uh, in my, uh, I teach a comparative politics class for undergraduates here, and I tell my students that you know when I was in graduate school, I wasn't sure that you know graduate school is the right thing for me until I read this book called Presidents and Assemblies, which was you know for me like getting religion. It was like understanding how our contemporary political world can be shaped by these things that I never paid attention to before, which are, you know, electoral institutions or constitutional structures. He's also written this other great article, I mean, he's written lots of great things, this other great article the, with Matt Shugart on the incentives to cultivate a personal vote, which I, I just read for fun every now and then, <laughs> such a fantastic uh, work of scholarship. And given that John has this tremendous uh, body of work on the effects of political institutions, it's not surprising that he's, of course, asked to consult on uh, the uh, formation of political institutions in lots of countries around the world, including uh, countries that I study pretty closely in the Arab world. None of his suggestions has uh, come to pass, or, but, but nonetheless, he's tried. Um, John is also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences um, and is uh, just a, a, also a great colleague. So he's going to speak today about compulsory voting and John, maybe speak for about half an hour, 45 minutes, and then hopefully we'll have a lively uh, discussion. Great. So please join me in welcoming Professor John Kerry. Thanks so much, uh, Tarek, and, and uh, thanks everybody for coming out. It's a real honor to have a chance to talk to you. Um, is this an advancer? Excellent, okay. So I'm gonna talk today about this paper, which you can see, and before I start, I really wanna give uh, all a tribute to my co-author, uh, Yusaku Horiuchi, who um, is the, the real horsepower behind this project, in particular the, the uh, statistical analysis I'm going to present later. So uh, I'll also defer to him uh, any of the hard questions. Um, what are the big questions that we're addressing? There's really two, and they're closely related, right? So the first one, what difference does it make if more or fewer people vote? And in particular, what difference does it make if the state makes people? vote or makes more or fewer people vote. And that's, um, that's what we're interested in. Um, you know, this is, um, this with respect to compulsory voting, so this, this is our compulsory voting key here. Um, it's it's uh, a topic that popped up periodically, popped up about a month ago in a speech that Barack Obama gave, uh, speculating about how, uh, you know, compulsory voting in the United States might even uh, level the playing field in terms of political influence or mitigates uh, class bias. Um, it's not going to happen in the United States, but it does happen in a lot of other countries. And 
our motivation here is really, our, our intellectual motivation is uh, a presidential address to the uh, American Political Science Association that was given almost 20 years ago by, actually by my dissertation advisor, Aaron Leiphart, um, who called class bias and political participation, especially in, in, in voting participation, the unresolved dilemma of democracy. And um, so in his words, class bias means the inequality of representation and influence not randomly distributed, but systematically biased in favor of more privileged citizens and against the less advantaged citizens. And um, you know, so it's well known, certainly in the United States, that wealthier, more educated people voted higher rates than poorer or less educated people. Um, that is not universally true, but it's pretty widely true in a lot of political environments around the world. And as far as Leipart was concerned, the remedy that he suggested was compulsory voting to try to mitigate that class bias. Right? So the idea is this is going to offset bias and turnout, and that in turn is going to um, achieve or, or uh, move us closer to equality of political influence. And we wanted to test this proposition, uh, Yusaku Horiuchi and I did. Um, so before I do that, I want to just walk through the steps, sort of what we see as the, as the logical steps in Leiphardt's theory, and I'm going to map these onto the empirical analysis that I show you in a few minutes. Um, so for Leiphardt's theory to be right, a few things need to be true. Um, first of all, policy preferences of the poor toward progressive redistribution have to be, they have to prefer more progressive redistribution uh, than the rich do. Okay, so policy preferences have to map onto socioeconomic status. Positive turnout bias. Well, we get positive turnout bias because you know, the, the, the standard stories, at least in the U.S. literature, it's true in, in the comparative literature as well, are that the informational costs and maybe the logistical costs to voting weigh more heavily on the poor than the rich. Okay? So wealthier tends to go with more educated. People have a, 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 an easier time sort of figuring out the map of the land politically, figuring out where their interests lie. They may have more flexibility in their job calendars and so forth, and so they, they're going to vote at higher rates than the poor do. That if you impose sanctions on non-voting, those sanctions in turn are going to weigh more heavily on the poor than the rich, and so they ought to be particularly good at offsetting turnout bias, right? That, that, uh, that poor people are going to be more responsive to, uh, to a particular sanction. Um, and so, and this is the last part, and this is critical, um, that there has to be policy responsiveness. Okay, so that if you offset class bias and political participation, that the government that's actually going to generate a respond, uh, generate a, spo a response. Uh, it's going to shift the median voter uh, toward favoring more progressive redistribution, and that the, the government is going to respond to that. Okay, so these are the 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 the, the logical components of Leipzig's theory, as far as we're concerned. So then the question is, all right, can we use cross-national analysis? This has been the traditional way to study the effects of compulsory voting. Can we use uh, cross-national analysis to estimate the effects compulsory voting on income inequality. So we can imagine, right, we can look at all the countries that have compulsory voting. We can measure inequality, not perfectly, but reasonably well, and we're getting better at it all the time. And we should just be able then to see, is there a relationship, right? Places with compulsory voting, do they have lower Gini coefficients than places uh, that don't? Okay, anybody want to guess? Do they? Don't they? Yeah. This is here are the countries, just so you know, right? You can, this is, you can cheat a little bit. Here are all the countries that we could identify that have or have had compulsory voting. A um, couple things to note here. There's about 40, I think there's 38 countries on this list. For most of them, I'm able to identify the date of adoption, not for all. If there's parentheses there, there's a little bit of uncertainty about it. Um, but what do you see? You see um, 
a lot of these adoptions happened a long time ago. The golden era of the adoption of compulsory voting is actually you know, between 75 and 100 years ago, or more than 50 years ago. That's going ma to matter later on, just I just, I, I just sort of flag it for you now, um, when we think about how we could test our, our proposition empirically. But here are the countries. All right, so if we just looked at the most recent year for which data are available and compared countries with compulsory voting against comp countries without compulsory voting, what are we going to find? Coin toss. Here we go. Um, I think this is 2013. Um, just, just for democracies, actually, Gini coefficients are slightly higher in the countries with compulsory voting than without compulsory voting. Um, this is not where the talk's going, by the way. I just wanted to let you know. Right? This is sort of the, the, blunt, uh, the bluntest possible you know, sort of cross-sectional snapshot. All right. There are a lot, all kinds of reasons that a straightforward, even a, even a much more um, you know, sort of rigorous cross-national analysis has got some problems. Um, so a couple things about measuring compulsory voting. One of them is that, first of all, I only showed you countries that have enforced sanctions. Some of them are stronger, some of them are weaker. In some places, it's, it's a pretty serious, it's a ser serious penalty if you don't. In other cases, it's just a slap on the wrist or a minor fine. Or you know, if you want to go renew your driver's license, you have to pay an additional $10 or something like that. Um, so there's variance in the enforcement. And there are some countries that are not included on that list that have a constitutional provision that says voting is required, but they don't actually have any law to enforce it and no sanctions. So, um, so there's some variance there, but the more important ones are that the adoption in most of those cases is more than 50 years ago. So we don't have uh, decent income inequality data going back that far. Okay? Um, and that, that creates some kind of a, a problem for, for time series analyses. Um, and the other thing you notice, if we went back, we could look. Um, there have been a few cases of abandonment of compulsory voting, but uh, the, actually one of them, the most recent one, is Chile, uh, just a couple of years ago. That's too late for us to have any data on uh, income and quality effects after the, case, after the fact. So put that aside for a second. Imagine we just wanted to do a straightforward cross-national study of uh, income inequality or the effect of compulsory voting on income inequality, there are a bunch of other things that we can imagine that also are likely to affect income inequality, right? Covariates we'd want to control for. Um, access to education. Is that egalitarian in the country or is it, is it not? Um, how ethnically homogenous or heterogeneous is the country? Right? We, have, we, we have stories and good evidence that these kinds of things matter to income inequality and to policies to redistribute income. Um, how competitive is the, our elections in the country? Is there a presence of large, well-developed leftist parties? Right? So there's a bunch of things besides compulsory voting that might matter. The problem is, and this is, the real, this is what causes the real identification problem with a straightforward cross-national approach, is some of these things are likely to be causally related to whether the country has either adopts or abandons compulsory voting in the first place. Right? So if we think about, you know, our, right, we've got compulsory voting, we've got income inequality, we can measure it. Okay? We would want to control for other factors that might affect the inclination of the political system to redistribute and to, to pursue progressive policies. Maybe things like access to public education, electoral competitiveness, the existence of leftist parties. But right, if the existence of compulsory voting adopted 75 years ago affects things like some of these, some of these relevant covariates, then we've got a problem with, with accurately estimating the effect of compulsory voting. Or we could think of things that may have been in place before compulsory voting was, you know, inclination to redistribute might have, might be driven by things, you know, demographic factors like homogeneity or maybe leftist parties that were around for a long time ago. 
But if those things affect the likelihood that compulsory voting gets adopted, we've also got a problem with identification. All right, so that's not the strategy we pursue and it gives you a sense of, of why we don't pursue it. What do we do? We do something that I'll just as a footnote point to a couple of other recent studies uh, that I think are really good and, and have you know, sort of consciously tried to get around these identification problems that we were wrestling with. And what they do is they take advantage of variation across states within federal systems. So there's a couple of papers um, uh, by Tony Fowler and by Bechtel, Heingartner, and Schmid published a couple of years ago, um, one looking at the adoption of compulsory voting by some Australian states but not others in the early part of the 20th century, another one uh, looking at the adoption of compulsory voting by uh, one or two Swiss cantons, and um, you know, so they're basically, their counterfactual is the other states in these federal systems, and they look at support for leftist parties and support, in the Swiss case, for leftist policy positions in uh, citizen initiatives, direct democracy initiatives. And they find um, some pretty suggestive support that there, when, you, when voting is compulsory, you get higher turnout and you also get um, greater levels of electoral support for leftist positions, pro-redistributive positions. Okay, so those are suggestive and we're actually gonna find evidence that points in the same direction but we take a, a different strategy. So here's what we do. We wanna look at the downstream, the downstream effect actually even further downstream than what Fowler and Schmid, Hamgartner and so forth look at, um, all the way down to the effect of the abolishment of compulsory voting on net Gini coefficients in Venezuela. So Venezuela had compulsory voting uh, from the time it returned to democracy in the late 1950s until 1993. Okay, so we got actually a 30 plus year period of competitive electoral democracy under compulsory voting, and it abandoned, actually it, it voted, or it, the reform to abandon compulsory voting I think was in 1989, but the first election post-abandonment was 1993. Okay, so we're gonna look at this move in the, in the opposite direction. We should expect a decline in progressive redistribution, um, and uh, it's gonna be after 1993. And we're also gonna look at the mechanisms, right? So if you think about those logical steps to Leipart's argument, we're gonna try to unpack those and see whether we can, at each, link in the logical chain, see if we can find evidence uh, for Leipart's logic using the available data and methods. And I'll say at the front, not all of the evidence is gonna be absolutely overwhelming, you know, knock it out of the park, right? We find, uh, I think it's pretty suggestive, I think it's, it's, it's reasonably strong, but it's not as though it's lights out at every link in the chain. All right, I should invite you at any point, you guys want me to slow down, stop, go back, you wanna challenge something, that is fine. I'm entirely content to be interrupted. So um, there, was a, there was a financial penalty. Um, they wouldn't come and hunt you down and make you pay it. But the next time you wanted to transact any business with the government, you needed to do so before you could, before you could do that. You also, you couldn't get a passport. You, if you're a business owner, you couldn't contract that contract with it. You, couldn't, you weren't eligible for government contracts. That's not uh, going to affect a large swath of the population, certainly not the poor population. You couldn't get access, you couldn't go to um, uh, public universities. I don't know how complicated the informatic system was. Um, they had a voter roll and they had a list of people who had, who had voted at the last election. So certainly to the, to the universities, to the driver's license bureau, to the passport bureau. I am not in a position, I, I, I was neither a Venezuelan nor in Venezuela at the time, so I can't say whether uh, whether they caught up with me, I'll only say this. My, my, our knowledge of the enforcement, we owe completely to this guy, Jose Molina, 
who's a, who is a Venezuelan political scientist, and he provided some of the survey data I'm going to show you later. But I asked him a lot about this, and, and he said that enforcement was really rigorous in the 1960s and 1970s. It started to slack off a little bit in the 1980s, but not because of, and by his account, not because of sort of technological obstacles or anything like that, which I guess should have been declining, but because of lack of political will. Um, and then they abolished the sanctions altogether before the 1993 election. So it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. But according to him, anyway, the enforcement was pretty rigorous, you know, while the law was on the books. All right. So here's our hypothesis that I think should be pretty straightforward. Here's getting to your question. What was the motivation? Right. So the idea is, if it was the case that the, adoption, the, the abolition of compulsory voting was part of a larger movement designed to undermine progressive redistribution, right? Then, you know, it may be the case that compulsory voting played a role, but it may, it would, it would, it would also be, you know, be, there could be all kinds of other unmeasured, unmodeled factors that were undermining progressive redistribution. So we we're interested in the motivations behind this, and um, what's this? Okay, here we go. So what we're, what we're, you know, in an ideal world in terms of identification of the model, there's nothing about political inclination or political support for redistribution that drives compulsory voting, right? That this, this path, this causal path is blocked. You know, this is one of, my, one of my lines at the end of this talk is, you know, to ask you to stop and think, I just told you that, you know, the median voter in Venezuela moved to the right in the early 1990s, right? That's not normally what we associate with the Venezuela in the 1990s. Um, but I'm gonna suggest that well, I'll put it this way. We've looked as hard as we can to try to identify any um, motivation, any sort of regressive motivation behind this reform. We cannot find it. Um, certainly, five years later, ten years later, for sure, right, things were moving hard to the left in Venezuela. Um, but we can't find it, and now, that doesn't mean it didn't exist. And it certainly could be the case that people who were advocating for this reform you know, had an unstated agenda to minimize redistribution. Um, but there were, in the, in the records that we've looked at, we looked at supporters of the reform, we looked at opponents of the reform, and nobody was making this argument. So even people resisting the reform were not making the argument that this is really about regressive, regressive redistribution. What was the argument about in the late 1980s? So this is the reformer's intention. Um, by the late 1980s, there was massive disillusionment with the political system in Venezuela. It wasn't, it hadn't crystallized around a, a sort of a Chavez kind of agenda yet. The main motivation, at least among the people debating these electoral reforms, was about breaking up the control of the party bosses in Caracas. Right? Venezuela is, you know, people call it a partido crisis. It, it, it was a dictatorship of the, of the political party bosses uh, through the 60s and 70s and into the 1980s. And the, the big, at least public expression of, of disillusionment was about the centralization of power in these two big parties, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democratic parties. Um, and there was declining confidence in institutions. So in 1989, when they passed this reform bill, compulsory voting or abolishing it was not the whole story. Actually, the bigger part of that story were these other reforms. There were going to be direct elections of governors. Venezuela is a federal system, but they didn't have direct election of governors until uh, after this 1989 reform. There was going to be, uh, they had also had pure closed list elections for legislatures all the way from top to bottom. So both for the, you know, for the national legislature, uh, House and Senate, and state legislatures. Um, they opened up 
and, and for municipal councils. They opened up the lists at the state legislative level and at the municipal council level so that voters could actually pick their individual candidates, not just take the slate that was given to them by the party leaders. And they also adopt for the chamber of deputies a mixed system. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. So instead of just pure closed list proportional representation, half of the seats would be elected by single member district plurality. So you vote for the individual, not for the party. Along with that was the ab abolition of compulsory voting. But when you read the debates, and they, Venezuela created this presidential commission on electoral reform, existed for about 10 years from the early 1980s until the early 1990s, and they, you know, they published all kinds of studies, they held conferences, they published transcripts of debates and hearings and so forth, and we went back through all this looking, was there an explicit debate about you know, anticipated effects on economic redistribution, and there weren't. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't exist. But um, we've looked as hard as we can, and what we find is that the idea of compulsory voting was itself regarded as anti-elite, partly because you know, people are disillusioned with the party system, and their sense was the parties and this larger system are telling us to vote. We don't want to do it. That's the best I can do. But I, I can't find a barking dog that says this was about economic redistribution. No, I mean, they were facing massive voter disillusionment. There was actually there was some increase for smaller parties, parties on the left and other parties. Um, you know, so they totally dominated elections in the 60s and 70s, and it started to diminish a bit in the 80s. Um, but there were also popular movements and social disillusionment. You know, there were, there were protests and so forth. But they, I mean, they were also empowering the riffraff to break the monopoly of the, of the, of the party central committees. Um, so, you know, these guys had controlled every candidacy from the top to the bottom of the system, all the way down to municipal council. They controlled everybody's career. Everybody depended on them. They were actually opening the floodgates pretty considerably to a, a break on their, on their power. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, they may, it may have been the case that they also looked and they said, eh, it wouldn't be so bad if the poorest 20% of the society didn't vote. It might have been. And they wouldn't have said it publicly. But what I would have expected would be that the, the, the leaders of the Socialist Party would have come in and said, you know what? All these reforms, yeah, these are well and good. These are going to open things up a little bit. But compulsory voting, no. We need compulsory voting. We want, and they didn't. They were silent on it. And so, you know, I'm counting on the voices of progressivism being out there and being out front, and they weren't on compulsory voting. Again, it doesn't, it's not conclusive. But I kind of would have thought there would have been a, more of a debate about it in those terms. It wasn't there. Okay. So compulsory voting goes away in Venezuela. What do we expect to see if Leipart's theory is right? A decline in voter turnout. I'll show you that in a second. A shift to the right in the preference of the median voter with respect to progressive redistribution. The election of politicians who support less redistribution. The implementation of less progressive economic policies. And finally, an increase in economic inequality. Okay, so now we'll walk through and see what kind of evidence we could turn up for each of these things. And the first one is going to take about 20 seconds. This is the decline in turnout. Right, so the, here are the uh, five, six national elections under compulsory voting. You see there's a slight diminution in turnout. It's kind of in the 80% neighborhood up through the mid-70s, late 70s, early 80s. It's in the 75%, 78% neighborhood. Um, but there's a steep decline. It goes down to about 50% um, in the first election once sanctions are removed. Okay. So that, pretty clear. Any, everybody good with that? All right. 
All right, now, was there a shift to the right in the preferences of the median voter? This is trickier because we don't have good public opinion polling data from Venezuela during this period. So this is where Jose Molina um, helped us out. He's actually the sort of, the, if you ever need archived Venezuelan public opinion data, he's the best source you could go to. So he found two surveys for us that he provided that allowed us to get a little bit of purchase here. And so the first three of these rows are from a survey that was done leading up to the 1983 election, okay, early 1980s. Um, and the second, the, la the bottom row is from an election, uh, from a survey that was done right after the 1993 election. Okay. So, what we were able to do with these data is break respondents into income quartiles, whether they're in the bottom, second, third, or top quartile. Uh, and so in 1983, they asked three questions. They said, thinking back, if you were old enough to vote in 1973, did you or didn't you? Okay. Ten years ago, you know, that's, that's true. We know something about people's memories of whether they voted. So these are, you have to take these with a grain of salt. They did the same thing for 1978. Thinking back five years ago, if you were old enough to vote in 1978, did you vote or didn't you? And <clears throat> then the last question they asked, and I remember, this is 1983, voting still compulsory. They said, if voting were not compulsory, would you vote or not? Okay, so that's what they did in 1983. So what we're looking at is, is there class bias in participation? So really what we're, you know, one way to think about that is what's the difference between the rate of the top quartile and the rate of the bottom quartile? So thinking back, Back to 73, it looked like about a 6% difference. Looking back to 1978, like an 11% difference. Um, when you ask them, would you vote now if you didn't have to? There's a just gigantic difference, right? So everybody's level drops precipitously. But the level of saying they would vote among the poor is drops far more precipitously than those in the rich. Um, by 1993, the same question, we got a, a difference between top and bottom quartiles of 12%. So. Like I said, th this is not knock it out of the park data, right? But you know, the average of these two numbers is bigger than the average of these two numbers. So it looks like we see an increase in class bias when we move from compulsory voting to voluntary voting. Um, it's rough data. Uh, and obviously, this is a counterfactual. And, you know, and the difference between 11 and 12 isn't much, right? If we, if we just take the, the most proximate points in time. The thing is, you know, after the election, if you think about Starting in 1998 and, and through the, the last decade or last decade and a half, there are a lot of things going on in Venezuela in terms of turnout and mobilization that I think, even though vo voting is voluntary, I don't know, actually, I, I should be looking at those data from LAPOP, but I haven't done it yet. Um, but I'm not sure whether I'd expect to see the standard class bias bring IDs to show that they're eligible to vote even though they are citizens, people from Puerto Rico who are able to vote when they're here, but not for the presidency when they're in Puerto Rico and all of that stuff. And how does that fit into that, you know? I don't know. We don't have, we don't have data on, on, on that electorate. I don't know whether or not um, their level of disenfranchisement would have been greater under compulsory or voluntary voting. I don't know. So I can't really. My sense is that the, during the period of compulsory voting, there was a much more inclusive, first of all, sense of national community, at least for quite a while, up maybe till the 1980s. But I don't think there, I don't know, but I don't think there were big debates in the, in, during the period of compulsory voting about who should and should not be included in the electorate. Um, there may be somebody who knows more about Venezuelan history than I, that uh, defer to that. But my sense was, you know, when I, was, when I went to graduate school in the late 1980s and 
you know, we started to study a little bit about Venezuelan politics, it's hard for us to imagine now. It was always portrayed as the sea of democratic tranquility, right, relative to the rest of the, of the hemisphere. Right? It was, you know, either with the Costa Ricans, but, you know, nobody can top that. But other than that, Venezuela was where it's at. And, and the sense that this is a reasonably inclusive system, look, they had a lot of oil wealth in the 70s and, and you know, 60s and especially in the 1970s. That made it easier, I think, to, to build a system in which people felt included. Let's think about the movement of the, of the median voter in a different way. So now we think about presidential elections, okay? So during the, the what's called the, post, the Punto Fijo Pact was the pact among the parties that reestablished democracy in uh, 1960. Um, and so this period of stability from the 60s into the early 90s is called the Punto Fijo era. And if we, if we look at the elections that took place, 73, 78, 83, 88, incredible stability in the distribution of vote. Um, so Copeo is the center-right, it's the Christian Democratic Party. They're always in this neighborhood. This is their minimum, this is their maximum. Acción Democrática, center-left, the, the, the Social Democratic Party. This is their minimum, this is their maximum. They won more of the elections, but you know, Copeo surpassed them a couple of times. And various parties on the left eventually becoming this movement to socialism, the MAS party, always in the neighborhood between five and 10%. And this was, a, you know, sort of, uh, a series of, of this is presidential elections, uh, pretty stable, uh, and this is the sort of my schematic of where the party stood on a left-right spectrum. If we think about trying to, there's only one data set that actually takes presidential candidates and locates them based on expert opinion surveys on a left-right spectrum, and that's the Baker and Green data set, um, which is a terrific data set. It goes back only as far as 1993, so we only have one um, election in the period that I'm studying. Uh, for which they located the, the candidates on a left-right, it's a 20-point spectrum. Um, but they've got them more or less in that place, right? So here they've got, in the 1993 election, Copé split. Rafael Caldera, who had been one of the founders of Copé, and actually had been elected president under the Copé label uh, in the 1960s, ran at the head of this Convergencia coalition. Copé ran a separate candidate, and Baker and Green, put both of these candidacies here at 14.8, so as a, as a center-right party. They put Acción Democrática here at 11.4% of the, of the oh, sorry, 11.4 on a 20-point scale, and they put the, point, uh, put the main leftist party, Causa Radical, in that election uh, at 7.9. Um, so uh, I'm trying to remember how they, um, they, locate, they locate the parties, I'm trying to remember their, they locate the parties by surveying experts and their uh, voter revealed leftism I'm trying to remember it's a world politics article a couple years ago I gotta I gotta but um, I can't can't conjure it right now yeah on economic reasons is it so it's a, you ask people on a standard left right scale usually you leave it open as to what people mean by the left right scale but, but I just well, we know from comparative politics that those the contents of those things can sort of cut across economic or social dimensions in different country contexts it means something slightly different uh, like in China versus in the US. Pretty, if you ask if you then ask survey people on what they mean by left and right it's pretty consistent that they see right as less redistributive left as more redistributive um, and if you start to ask them about social issues those may they may vary a bit but on economic, on economic role issues. of state and the economy, the survey data is pretty consistent. We can, we can talk about uh, a left-right scale uh, in a meaningful way. All I want to say about this is, if this is the world we lived in prior to 1993, 
And this is the world we live in in the election of 1993, the first election after the abolition of compulsory voting. The median voter was always here during these elections, right? You know, so if we start on the left and count to 50, the median voter was always here, even in the elections that Copay won, because the left was soaking up some of the vote. But the median voter here is somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of Copay and, and Caldera. Caldera won the election. They used a plurality elections. They didn't have a runoff. So Caldera won the election in 1993 with 31% of the vote. But if Baker and Green are right, then the median voter is here. It appears to have shifted to the right after 19, or in 1993. Now, I told you before, you know, we've got some suggestive, su suggestive evidence, but it isn't necessarily conclusive. There are a lot of people that would tell a different story about the 93 election from the story that Baker and Green's data tell. So if we think about, again, this is the, these are the results of the 1993 election. Um, think about what happened in Convergencia. Or actually, let's think about AD first. AD was, was held the presidency from 1988 to 1993. It was the second presidency of another lion of Venezuelan politics, Carlos Andres Perez. He had been president from 73 to 78 during the biggest part of the Venezuelan oil boom. His reputation was as a big spender, um, you know, lavish increase in, in spending in the mid-1970s. When he became president in 1988, the fiscal situation was radically different, and Perez became famous for his policy called the, the Gran Viraje, the big turnaround uh, in which he pivoted, at least was, was perceived as having pivoted Venezuelan economic policy to the right. Cut back, most famously cut back on fuel subsidies, which triggered a massive set of riots uh, in Caracas, uh, and uh, you know, really undermined his presidency early on. He staggered out of the presidency. He was removed a year early uh, in a corruption scandal. Um, but that was his presidency from 88 to 93. So, some people would say, and the narrative accounts of Venezuelan history would say, A.D., under, under Carlos Andres Perez's leadership, had pulled to the right between 88 and 93, so that that old map no longer applied. Meanwhile, Caldera, when he's running for president during this time, he's running, like everybody else, critically of Carlos Andres Perez. And when he broke from the rest of his party, he picked up with a bunch of parties, smaller parties, some of which were on the left, and his rhetoric in the campaign was pretty consistently critical of the sort of neoliberalism of Carlos Andres Perez. So if it's the case that the true map of Venezuelan presidential politics in 1993 had Caldera and AD, which is no longer ed led by Perez but has a new candidate, flip-flopped, okay? So our alternative version of Venezuelan politics 1993 looks like this, and now we've got Casa Radical, Caldera over here somewhere, Acción Democrática, and Copay like this. If that's really the way Venezuelan voters saw it, then it's ambiguous as to whether or not there was a shift to the right in the median voter. I mean, it still could be the case, right? Now the median voter is somewhere in here, maybe I said on the, on the, on the right edge of Caldera's support group. Um, but we don't know anymore. Is that to the right of where the median voter was during the Punto Fijo era? We don't know. Um, if, on the other hand, the Baker and Green map is right, or kind of right, that's more consistent with the Leipart hypothesis, right? right? To step back, we get rid of compulsory voting, voluntary electorate, median voter shifts to the right. So, not night and day. I feel it's important to give due, uh, you know, sort of credit to the alternative hypothesis. The only data set 
that actually tries to locate these people uh, according to their platforms has uh, Caldera to the right of Action Democratica. All right. Next step in the causal chain, politicians who support less redistribution. Now, here's the, here's the fuzziest part. But what we did is we got all the transcripts of all uh, Venezuelan floor debates in the Chamber of Deputies for the three years prior to the shift, 1991 to 1993, and for the first three years after the shift, 1994 to 1996. This massive amount of text. We clean it of all the words that don't have any content, the does, the us, the, you know, we's and so forth. Um, and then we, you know, uh, run this text analysis software to see, so we can, produce, we can produce these nice word clouds. These are good graphically, but they don't really tell you very much. Um, but still, I still get a kick out of them. Um, more importantly, if you then rank order the words, actually what you can do is you can look at the words and look at either the ratios or the absolute differences in the frequency with which these politically substantive words were used, 91 and 93, versus 94 to 96. What do we see? Um, so there's a bunch of words you know, that are equivalent in both periods and frequently used. Right? So citizens, public, power, rights, budgets, workers, customs, and so forth. Um, the ones that were more prominent in 1991 to 93, reform, people, the Pueblo in particular, and I, this is the one that kind of jumps out at me the most, constitution and democratic. Um, when El Pueblo is used in, in, in you know, Spanish political discourse, I, it, I think of it as, as a term of you know, sort of solidarity and a term that I associate more with the discourse of the left, more so than with the discourse of the right. If we look at what was more prominent, the, the words that grew the most in the period after the adoption of the reform, development, that may be kind of neutral, fund, bank, debt, and security. And they weren't talking about personal debt, they were talking about government debt, and they weren't talking about uh, security in the sense of a safety net, they were talking about physical security and crime. I associate these, and again, this is a kind of a duck rabbit kind of thing, right? You know, you, I look at this and I think, this looks more left, that looks more right uh, to me. But again, it's, it's impressionistic. Um, a couple of the examples, and this is not just cherry picking, I kind of look through. When, when, it, when they did refer to El Pueblo, it tends to be in this kind of a context, right, that the IMF endorsed economic policies are a shackle around the ankle of the people of Venezuela. Uh, and when they talk about debt and uh, security, they were talking about security of people and property pretty consistently, and debt was, uh, they were talking about about public debt. It was a massive banking crisis after uh, in the early 1990s, and the question was, to what extent was the was the state going to bail the banks out? So I'm going to hope I'm going to ask you to hold on a minute longer. Actually, I hope I can I'll get through all this stuff. There's going to be a, a placebo test later. At least one of the other institutional reforms, which is to say the one that moved from closed-list PR to elections with half PR and half single-member districts, we got another case, and I'm going to juxtapose Venezuela with Bolivia and at least I th that's the part of the talk where I'm trying to rule out alternative stories I'm still trying to get you to think maybe the story I'm telling you is possibly plausible so let's look at the fourth one okay here's one I find this one to be this was shocking to me when we found it right because I've been reading that standard narrative about you know the Carlos Andres Perez administration, the Gran Viraje, the, the Caracaso, the riots and the protests against the neoliberalism in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And I've been reading that as long as, you know, since it happened. So now we're on step four, implementation of less progressive economic policies. 
So our shorthand so far right here for progressiveness is government share, government spending as a share of GDP. Right? This is just the, the blunt measure of the size of the state and the economy. And we're mapping that here against net Gini coefficient. Okay, so this is Gini coefficient after taxation and transfers. All right. 1988, this is the year Carlos Andres Perez was elected. 1989, the state's larger. 91, it's a little smaller. Uh, 90, it's a little smaller. 91, it's a little larger. Two, it's smaller. Three, it's larger. It does not move in the whole of his administration. Right? Yeah, he did. I mean, so, you know, I don't know. I know that he did, for example, cut the fuel subsidies, and that was a trigger to the Caracaso. But overall, the size of the state didn't shrink at all. And neither did the Gini coefficient budge during that whole period. Right? It's only after 1993, this is the election of Caldera, and you know, all of the uh, legislators who no longer talk about El Pueblo. From 93 to 94, 95, we see a steady shrinking of the size of the state and the economy and a big spike in the Gini coefficient. Right? So I was really shocked because it didn't, you know, I just never would have expected to see to see this pattern. And so this to me, anyways, is probably the most compelling evidence that something happened after 1993 with respect to progressivity. In terms of Gini, actually Gini peaks in 2003. So the first five years of the Chavez administration, I mean, he didn't have as much, he didn't have very much oil money those first few years and, and things were tougher. But then uh, Gini starts to go down uh, from the mid-aughts. Um, uh, size of the state and economy grows enormously. So listen, our next step is just to try to make sure, is this anything different from what we, would, what we should have expected given the broader context, okay? So what we're doing in the next step, and this is, you know, looking at this incre increase in inequality, both these slides kind of get into that. Um, but we're going to compare Venezuela against uh, the other oil exporting economies in the, in the regions, right? So in, in all the other Latin American countries that are net oil, Latin American and Caribbean countries that are net oil exporters as of 1993, okay? Because maybe, maybe that pattern that we just witnessed is more broad, it doesn't have anything to do with Venezuela specifically, right? So we're looking, the data we draw on is this uh, standard, standardized world income inequality database um, that uh, provides data on net, which is to say after tax Gini coefficients, uh, for about a 50-year period, um, and y if you noticed, we actually don't. We actually have point estimates of Gini, but they come with um, uncertainty estimates as well. So these are drawn from. Uh, so in some countries, for example, countries that are part of the Luxembourg Income Study, there's a lot of household surveys that give us a really good, precise estimate of inequality. In other countries, we're relying on. Uh, government data that might be less reliable or surveys that might be more sparse and so we have uh, greater uncertainty about the estimate. This is I think the best uh, data both in terms of cross-national coverage or, and over time coverage and um, in a sense transparency about how precise the estimates are of, of income inequality. Our comparison set is going to be the six net oil exporters in the region plus Venezuela as of 1993. And so those are Argentina, Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Mexico, and Trinidad and Tobago. Okay? And the time period, we're going to run this test looking at three, across three different time periods. Basically what we're going to do is we're going to try to estimate the trajectory of where inequality should be going in each of these countries um, before and after 1993, which is our cut point. 
And in some of the models, we're going to look at you know, a five-year period before the cut point, a 10-year period, or a 15-year period. Because we don't really have a strong prior about what, you know, about what the right uh, time period prior to, the, to 93 is to try to estimate this trajectory. The longer time period you use, the more observations you have, the more efficient your coefficient estimates are. But if you, you know, but, but I don't know, what's the most relevant period to be looking at? If what we want to try to figure out is how unequal is the United States going to be in 2020, what's the most relevant thing? Is the most, recent, is the most relevant thing to look at the last five years and see how politics is going? Or does it actually make sense to look further back 5, 10, 20 years? It, it depends on your theory of you know, the, the politics of inequality. We don't really have a strong one. So we're going to do it, you know, we're agnostic. We'll do it three different ways. Um, so here are the Gini coefficients for the countries that we're looking at across this period. Uh, and they're kind of compressed because we put them all on the same, same y-axis. And you can see you know, we don't have data for some of the countries going back further, uh, Bolivia and Ecuador. And you can see we've got more reliable estimates for some countries than others. Um, but this is just what the, what the pattern looks like over time. So here's the model. It's an interrupted time series. It's a, sort of, it's a difference in differences model. Right? So the dependent variable is the net Gini coefficient for a given country i in year t. And the baseline is Venezuela in 1993. And the way to think about it is what the model's doing in order to try to figure out what's the expected trajectory is we've got a country-specific trend variable for each country. We've got country-specific fixed effects. Right? So these are sort of you know, dummy for what makes Argentina Argentina. Good luck to you if you can ever figure that out. Um, We've got year-specific fixed effects. So you know, what makes 1995, 1995, if there are worldwide trends in oil markets? Um, you know. And then, so, so in a sense, you know, what we're estimating is the trajectory of income inequality had Venezuela not experienced the change in 1993. And then what these, the two treatment variables do, treatment one and treatment two, is this is just a dummy for Venezuela after 1993. So it's going to measure the average difference from the expected trajectory now in the post-compulsory voting world. But it could be the case, in fact, it's likely to be the case, that the effects of abolishing compulsory voting don't appear overnight. Right? Policies have to be adopted, then they have to take effect. So the, the, the second treatment variable is the number of years after 1993 that we are. So if there's an increasing function, we're going we're gonna to pick that up with the second treatment variable. And then the null hypothesis is basically, is the sum of B1 and B2 distinguishable from 0? If they're not, then it, the conclusion is nothing special happened in 1993 in Venezuela. If they are, and if they're positive, then we can infer that, that Gini, something happened in Venezuela in 1993 to increase Gini. So I told you, we ran a bunch of these models. We ran, um, you know, again, we, we also don't have prior expectations about you know, what's the functional form of this relationship. Should there be a linear relationship? Uh, should it be increasing over time, diminishing? So we ran. Um, both linear and quadratic specifications of it. Actually, we ran cubic and quartic as well. It doesn't really matter. I'll just show you the, you know, the sort of emblematic results. If we think about the six models, right, the three different prior time periods and a linear and a quadratic model, five out of the six are significant. Uh, four out of the six are significant at 95% at, at or better. The fifth one is significant at 92%. At, at um, so, but, but one of the six is not. So it's, again, suggestive, but not conclusive. So you know, what we're thinking of is the, 
the coefficient on B0 is basically the predicted value of Gini for Venezuela given that nothing happened in 1993. And then the sum of B1 and B2 is going to be the predicted value if something actually happened, if something changed in Venezuela. It's, I think it's easier uh, to show this graphically. So basically, this is the same model. This is the 83 to 98 version, right? The gray bars here show you the, the SWID estimate for Gini in Venezuela during each of these years. And you can see it's going down for a while, and then it goes, starts going up after 1993. The green dots are or actually, the, the way to think about it actually is that look, follow the, the hollow dots. These are the estimates the predicted values on the model if we set B1 and B2 to 0. And then the difference is if we include the predicted, if we, if we take the predicted values based on the coefficients of B1 and B2. So you know, this is just a sort of gives us marginally more confidence. If you think back a couple slides ago, I was showing you what happened with the size of the state in Venezuela. What this is based on is Venezuela's prior trajectory plus what was going on in all these other analogous oil exporting states. They generate 100, but, but there's going to be more variance in the, in the set of 100 multiply imputed values. There's going to be more variance in the countries where the original data sources are less reliable. That's why you get the big error bars for Bolivia and Argentina and Mexico, not so much. So now, actually, I want to go toward what Tarek was asking earlier, which is, you know, why should we believe this has anything to do with compulsory voting? All we've done so far is, we think we've shown something happened in 1993, but it could be something else, right? So we try to rule out some alternative stories, right? So we have run a couple of placebo tests. Um, first one, think about Trinidad and Tobago. So Trinidad and Tobago is the only country here in which oil as a share of the GDP is even in the same ballpark as Venezuela. Right? Mexico is pretty big in this period, but Mexico is a big country with a big economy. Um, and Argentina is not much of an oil exporter and so forth. So if it was something that was, if the, if the pattern that we see is driven by being a big oil exporter, maybe it would show up in Trinidad and Tobago as well. So we do the same thing for them. Um, and the alternative placebo test is Bolivia. So Bolivia, and, and this is I think where you were going, at least one of the electoral reforms that got adopted, Bolivia did the exact same thing in, as Venezuela. They did it four years later. So in 1997, Bolivia, which like Venezuela, had always had closed list PR in pretty big uh, districts, the departments in Bolivia, shifted to a mixed system where half of the half of the uh, the Congress is elected by single member district plurality. And there's a story out there that says, and it actually, Torben Iverson, who works just up the street, wrote a very famous paper that says you're going to have lower demand for economic redistribution if you move to a single member district plurality system versus in a, in a proportional representation system. Um, I think that actually, if you, if you think through the logic of that Iverson and Soskis model, it, doesn't, it, it has to do with the formation of parliamentary governments largely. And I don't think it really applies. But let's, let's give it the full benefit of the doubt. If they're right, then perhaps Bolivia should be expected to see the same kind of reaction after 1997 that Venezuela saw after 1993. So here are our two placebo tests. I actually can show you the, the results if you want to see them. I've got them buried in the extra slides. But the answer is, None of the models come up significant in any, any specification. Doesn't matter if you use three, five years, 10 years, 15 years. Doesn't matter what functional form you use. And same thing for Trinidad and Tobago. So 
we haven't ruled out all possible alternative explanations, but the ones that we, we think we've been able to test. Oh, here's the, actually, here's the slide for Trinidad and Tobago. There you can see a bunch of really high p-values. Um, I guess I did have the slide. Um, but it doesn't look like there's anything going on after 1993 in the other big oil export. And here's the, Bolivia were limited because they don't have um, Gini estimates for, for that many years. But we run it going back as far as 1989 up through 2002, five years after. And it doesn't, again, look like there's anything going on. Bolivia subsequently also moved to the direct election of governors. And we should look at that. Um, that was later. But now that I think about it, that's another one of the Venezuelan reforms. Bolivia is a presidential system? Mm -hmm. Well, it, you know, in this period, it, it had a funky, yeah, it is in the sense that they have a direct election for president. And whoever becomes president is elected for a fixed term. But in the, in the Bolivian case, actually, there's an asterisk because Bolivia had a rule. So prior to Abel Morales, nobody ever won a majority in Bolivia. And the rule, for, I, can't, I don't know what the rule is under Evo's constitution, but the prior rule was that uh, if nobody wins a majority, it's decided in Congress. And actually, Bolivia did choose its presidents um, th three or four cycles in a row. They chose not the plurality winner. So it really was parliamentary in the choice. In that sense, you could make the case that, you could make a stronger case that Iverson and Saska should have applied in Bolivia. But we don't see any measurable effect. We could look at the, actually, just thinking aloud here, I'm thinking I want to look at the direct election of, of their department level governors. Again, I don't have a prior reason to expect that directly electing governors is going to undermine progressive redistribution. But, um, but it's, another, it's another reform that maps onto the Venezuelan case. It'd be interesting to look at. So I've said it before a couple of times. I don't, again, you know, I want to be completely upfront about, I don't think every piece of evidence that I've showed you is knock them dead. Um, but it does look like not forcing people to vote in Venezuela. It certainly yielded a more unequal distribution of income. And I think there's pretty good suggestive evidence at a number of links in the causal chain um, that, that parts of Leipart's argument seem to, be, uh, seem to be supported. Now, it's complicated, as we've, as we've seen, you know, trying to figure out. It, it's a difficult estimation problem to try to figure out whether compulsory, compulsory voting or the lack of it is what's causing this. And the evidence is stronger for some links of the chain than others. But, but I think it's you know, suggestive. And there's another case that's coming online pretty soon, which is the Chilean case. They abolished compulsory voting two years ago. Um, and they've had now had their first presidential election subsequent to that reform. That's a trickier one. Because at the same time that they abolished compulsory voting, they made registration automatic, which gets to, to your point. So they, they adopted two reforms simultaneously, one of which should reduce the franchise and the other one which uh, should expand it. So it's not, it, it, in some ways, it's not as clean a case as the Venezuelan. But nevertheless, it'll be, it'll be fun to watch that one going forward. The, the argument for reform, and again, you always have to take reformers' statements with a grain of salt, but the argument for reform was purely framed in terms of, we're not going to tell you what to do. And it, was, it was a libertarian argument. In a specific version of libertarian may be too strong. It was an argument that said, you know, we know that you don't trust this state. And the last thing you want is this state telling you what to do or telling you you've got to go vote for a bunch of options that you, you don't really trust. If you look, this, it's an interesting paper um, by a guy named Shane Singh, who's at Georgia State now, um, looking at um, compulsory voting in, in Brazil. And so Brazil's got compulsory voting, and they enforce it. But one of the interesting things about that is 
once you turn 70, you, you don't have to go anymore. Uh, and there's a couple of other things, I think, if you're, if you're sick or something. But basically, they, they take a, they, they he takes advantage of this discontinuity in, in age, right? So you've got people on both sides of 70 who otherwise ought to be thinking about the state pretty much the same way. And people who are under the compulsory voting rule are less supportive of democracy than on the other side. They resent it. Um, and, and a similar kind of argument was going on in Venezuela in the 1980s, which people just completely resented the idea that the state was forcing them to vote, penalizing them if they didn't. And by the way, you could not get on the ballot if you weren't part of a registered party. So no, no, none of the options, if you hated the parties, none of the options available to you were acceptable. And so in a sense, when I said this was a, an anti-party reform, that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. This is, where, this is what I found so shocking. You read the narrative accounts. And the narrative accounts are all saying these market reforms in the 1980s, they totally shrunk the size of the state. But they didn't. I couldn't believe it. It's not clear that they even started with Carlos Andres Perez. But I would then say, well, so why did they stall under, I mean, it's not like protests stopped under Caldera. There were still protests. Why was, why was Caldera politically stronger in his effort to do this than Carlos Andres Perez was? But he also had to, he had to confront a Congress that either could accept or not accept the reforms. Um, yeah, no, I mean, so, what, but the, to me, the thing that was shocking is you're never going to know, you're never going to know that Venezuela spent these five years here by reading at least any of the narrative accounts that I've read. Um, and I think, you know, when you hold, you hold the, the data up, it was, uh, it was stunning. Well, like I said, this is like the duck rabbit. It depends on how much you squint when you're looking at it. But you said, you know, I absolutely don't believe what people say if I ask them what they did 10 years ago, but five years ago, oh yeah, I'm on board with that. And they, you know, so like, <laughs> maybe they do, but 10 years versus five? Uh, and I would look at that and say, you know, you could, disc, you could apply whatever discount factor you want on this. It might be bigger than the discount factor you apply to this. Turnout numbers, no, turnout numbers are easy to get, but mapping turnout onto socioeconomic class depends on, you can't do it from raw turnout numbers. You got to have public opinion data, but we do, we get so much better public opinion data now that can where you can. So now you have to depend on people's reporting of whether they voted, but um, but you can track it at the individual level to what they report about their income level, and I think that's that's encouraging too. We wouldn't have any problems Why if we look at that table and pick Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Where was I? Was I? Wait, 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 wait. When did Italy abolish? Ninety-three. Ninety-three. There's a reason, though. I can't remember what it was. Um, I can't remember what it was. There's a reason. We did. Yeah, and field work. I've never, I've never even set foot in Italy, so that would be awesome. Um, thank you. <laughs> well, well I, I, this was great. It's fantastic. Uh, please, everybody, join me in thanking. Thanks, guys.